1: Hello, and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg.
2: I'm Katie Greifeld. I'm a cross-asset reporter filling in for Vildana Heirich.
1: And this week on the show, if you're anything like me, you probably talk about the last decade or so as three distinct periods. First, there was the pre-COVID times, that period of low inflation, low growth, and low interest rates after the global financial crisis. That's often referred to as the new normal. Then there was the stay-at-home COVID era when absolutely nothing was normal. And then there's now. And in the here and now, COVID isn't the threat it once was, but things are still quite a bit different than they were before COVID. And that's especially true when it comes to the economy and financial markets. So what changes can we expect to be permanent? And importantly for this show, what will it mean for your investments? We'll get into it with a strategist in the asset management unit of a major bank who recently helped author a 70-page research report on the post-COVID world. But first, Katie,
2: thanks for filling in for
1: Voldana this week.
2: I am thrilled for the opportunity.
1: Yeah, is feeling a little under the weather this mm-hmm. week. And as you know, she's very excellent podcast co-host.
2: Yes. Sometimes
1: she goes a little overboard, I'll say. <laughs> like, when I make a dad joke, she, she laughs a little too hard. She hams it up. Sometimes she's always talking about how cool and young seeming I am. For oh, my, yeah, yeah. A little overboard. So, yeah, okay. so, try to Keep that tone down. I'll yeah. dial it back. Keep it in check. Got it. But speaking of another cool, hip young guy we have here returning to the show, he is the head of institutional portfolio strategy at JP Morgan Asset Management. Uh, Jared Gross, welcome back to the show.
3: Thank you so much, Mike. And as a father of three, if you need any backup on the dad jokes, <laughs> someone I am will, your guy.
1: Someone will get me. The joke there, of course, is I don't think Voldana's once laughed at any <laughs> at any joke I've made. That's good. That was an authentic A little laugh.
2: bit of a, a tortured <laughs> laugh there. <laughs> but
1: Jared, talk to us about, this is a fascinating report you guys have, 70 pages. I'll confess, I haven't read every... Every page. I've read most of it, though. But, you know, if you had a quick elevator conversation with a client, how would you sum up what you find to be the biggest takeaways from this report?
3: So I think I'll start, if you'll indulge me, with just a little bit of a snapshot of what happened before, because I think it sets up the conversation. And I think you touched on this a little bit. What you had before COVID was a very globalized economy with long supply chains. You had a lot of migration that took the pressure off of developed market economies when it came to a declining labor force. You had low inflation, which led to a very deeply ingrained accommodative monetary policy, QE, low interest rates across the board. And then because we had low interest rates, we had rising asset prices and we had a lot of leverage. And so COVID comes along and shocks that system. And I think that equilibrium that existed pre-COVID was somewhat fragile. That doesn't mean it was necessarily doomed to unwind, but COVID came along and sort of did that for us. And so... In that shock, you had the phase one was the health crisis and a lot of government spending and the shutdowns. And we all kind of lived through that. And then maybe less well understood was the kind of the fiscal impulse that came on. And that's important because prior to COVID, the monetary policy authorities were the only game in town. If anything, they were pushing back against austerity or very low levels of fiscal spending. And that did a complete 180 when COVID hit. The fiscal authorities woke up. They started spending money. And the monetary authorities actually financed it. If you look at the amount of debt that was issued during COVID, almost to the dollar it was paid for by central bank balance sheets. And so that shifted the entire sort of economic dynamic. So now, you know, what we did in this report is we're looking for things that are more permanent, as you said. We don't want to tell the story of Peloton that went up and came right back down, or a cruise line that went down and came right back up. Or crypto or crypto if we want to go there. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, there are some interesting things. I mean, we look at supply chains, and there's a lot of narrative in the market now about deglobalization. I think it's actually much more subtle. It's a rewiring of trade. It's the big pipe between China and the developed markets is being split apart. There's a lot of reshoring, onshoring, friendshoring, nearshoring, all of that stuff is going on. And it's a real thing, and it's going to change the way trade happens. We've got a lot of demographic challenges in the developed world that while they remain profound, we have seen some daylight now in the form of technology. The fact that we were all able to go home and work for two years, we're back from that. But when we look at a declining labor force and we say, how do we get talent back into that labor force? We can do that remotely now. And that's a huge advantage that developed economies are going to have. The fiscal and monetary sort of flip-flop I described a little bit, the way we put it in the paper is that the central bank put, which everyone used to talk about, has probably been replaced with a fiscal put. If you're looking for a backstop for market volatility, you probably can't depend on the monetary authorities as much as you used to because they now have to be very careful, given the amount of fiscal stimulus in the economy. They can't just cut rates because stocks go down. or They can't just cut rates because a bank is wobbling. And we've seen that. You think about what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. That was basically a Fed operation that the Fed sort of went along with, but that was not the Fed cutting rates to ease the market's mind. It was yeah. it's a profound change.
1: You consider that more on the fiscal side, I guess, since it it, it wasn't a result of lowering rates or Yeah, like I'd say
3: I'd say the traditional tools of monetary policy, which were if there's something's going wrong, you cut rates first to take the pressure off. That seems to be off the table right now. And that is, I think, a little bit by design. The Fed wants to restore its credibility. And one of the aspects of restoring credibility is you have to demonstrate some indifference to market volatility. If you're cutting rates at the first sign of someone losing money, you know, right. you're know you not going to have a lot of credibility. And I think the Fed sort of, they've been looking for a way out of that trap for a while, and this seems to have given it to them.
2: I definitely want to talk about the credibility topic because that has definitely become a conversation in markets. But I want to make sure I'm understanding the metaphor that sort of the central bank put has been replaced by the fiscal policy put. It sounds like what you're saying is not that fiscal authorities will come out and throw a lot of money at the economy if market volatility increases. It sounds like what you're saying is rather that because of all of that stimulus from the fiscal side, that sort of limits the central bank's ability to step in every time there's a hiccup.
3: I mean, there are some problems that the fiscal authorities may be better suited to solve financial market volatility probably isn't one of them but if you think about certain areas of growth you look at what happened in covid the ability to pump money into employers and employees pockets to support aggregate demand during covid short term interest rates would have helped at the margin and we did see short term interest rates fall so you can't necessarily sort of prove the counterfactual but i think a lot of the lesson learned was that fiscal policy can play a very real role in responding to crises and so you know, I think, as you said, like the fiscal authorities feel a little bit unbound by what's happened and they then they feel more active. And as a result, the monetary authorities have to hang back and take a more sort of defensive posture.
1: Yeah, I wanted to rewind a little bit and talk about that reaction to Silicon Valley Bank and some of the other regional banks that were sort of wobbling there. It was a pretty impressive reaction from the Fed and the Treasury Department, how quickly they were able to seemingly put that fire out. But I wonder if the fire is really out. Interest rates aren't going any lower anytime soon. That pressure on deposits, the funding costs at smaller banks hasn't really gone away. Have we heard the end of this story when it comes to the banking sector? Or is it possible we'll be dealing with another one down the road sometime?
3: I think they've Taken what could have been a very short, sharp, and sort of painful reckoning for a lot of these banks and extended it. And the issue I think was we're probably all familiar with was you had the assets on the bank's balance sheets had gone down in value a lot as interest rates had risen. And when depositors were pulling money, that forced a sort of mark to market of those assets and wiped out the capital. And so that forced the FDIC to essentially step in and put these banks into receivership. And that's a simplified version of the story, but that's basically what happened. Now, because they're able to essentially fund their liabilities at the original purchase price, they've taken that mark-to-market change off the table, but they, in order to retain their deposits, they have to pay a market rate. You know, the, the demand from depositors to get the highest possible rate is very real. They can go to a money market fund. They can go to the next bank down the road. And I think they've realized that the deposit insurance limit is a real thing. You know, mm. we get reminded of that every 10 years or so that, you know, There is a limit on what deposit insurance is worth. And so, yeah, I think to answer your question, this is going to be a lingering problem for the banks because if they are essentially unprofitable because they can't earn a net interest margin over their deposits by virtue of having to offer such high rates, then their capital will sort of gradually diminish over time, or at least it prevents them from building up capital and becoming more resilient. The story is not fully written, to be sure.
2: So what does that mean for monetary policy? Because if we think back, the Fed had a meeting in March, which was amazing. And I remember the thought exercise on Wall Street at the time was how much of a tightening impulse is all of this stress that you're seeing among the banks worth? And it feels like we kind of settled on 50 basis points. I don't know. I think Powell himself acknowledged that maybe it was worth 25 basis points. And then you think about what we heard from the Fed at June's meeting, and it feels like definitely... Some of those worst-case scenarios when it comes to the banking system have taken, been taken off the boil. When you think about that long-term story that you're talking about, that this is going to continue to be a problem for some of these lenders, the fact that you have a lot of competition coming from money market funds, how does that translate into credit tightening?
3: The banks who are under pressure from having to pay higher deposit rates, they will presumably be less willing to extend credit. They will be more focused on preserving the equity capital that they have and earning their way out of the hole to the point where they have enough excess capital that they can resume lending. That's, you know, that may or may not be a huge part of the economy. Obviously, borrowers have many places they can go to get credit. Banks are one. The private credit industry, which, is, which has blossomed in the last 10 years is certainly there to offer credit. And larger banks who may not suffer from the same problem have the ability to offer credit as well. So I don't know at the economic level, sort of the macro level, how severe this is going to be. And it doesn't appear yet there's a lot of evidence that it's leading to a downturn. We do see signs of it in the, the loan officer survey and some of the data points that bank credit is becoming less available. And, you know, it may be that this is another sort of long and variable lag. We talk about monetary policy operating with a lag. Bank credit may offer the same feature. So I think it's it's a little too early to tell how big a, a problem it's going to be. I think from the market standpoint, and as it relates to the Fed, the question is, will the Fed essentially cave or pause earlier than they would or cut rates sooner than they would because of this? And I think... It's not really clear that that's the case. I mean, the market has been trying to call the Fed's bluff now for a couple years. Mm. And I think the Fed has generally spoken pretty clearly about what their intent is, which is to raise rates until you get to a positive real rate, hold it there for some period of time until inflation is coming down, and then gradually return rates back towards the the long-term sort of you know nominal target, 2% or thereabouts.
2: And but, I guess that comes back to the sort of credibility issue that we were talking about a few minutes ago, the fact that The market keeps fighting the Fed. I was looking at it a little bit earlier. I mean, Powell's been pretty clear that maybe two more rate hikes are kind of likely from here. It just feels like there's this persistent gulf between what's priced in and what Powell is actually saying. How do you narrow that gulf?
3: Well, I think the market has learned its lesson multiple times now. I think at some point they will be right in the sense that they will be pricing in the actual pivot from the Fed as the economy turns down, as inflation comes down. Thus far, they have not predicted that very accurately. And it's not, you know, I mean, you can sort of point the finger at the market broadly. Professional forecasters have not done a particularly good job of forecasting inflation. The five-year, five-year forward rate has not done a particularly good job of forecasting inflation. Consumer expectations have not done a particularly good job. So, Inflation is where it is. And I think the Fed is responding to real data about inflation. The core rate is still north of five. So does the Fed feel an imperative to cut at this point? Clearly not. If anything, they're going to go the other way. I mean, obviously they're going to be somewhat data dependent, but you see a lot of volatility in the two year, which is where I think that risk is concentrated. You don't see as much volatility at the long end of the curve, which is interesting because I think that tells you that Despite all of this uncertainty and the volatility we've been through, long-term inflation expectations are reasonably well anchored. And that the 10-year and certainly the 30-year have not moved around as much on a relative basis as we've seen the front end of the curve.
1: You know, Jared, you touched on this a little bit, but I just want to read one of the bullet points from that report we discussed and unpack it a little bit. It says, developed economies have been facing a seemingly intractable problem of aging populations, declining labor force participation, and insufficient immigration. COVID may have led to a potential solution, the power of workplace technology to match labor and capital at a distance. And presumably, that's describing Zoom and teleconferencing and that sort of thing. But then this year, we had a new sort of wild card thrown into the mix in the form of artificial intelligence. And presumably, I think all of the hype and all of the stock market euphoria over it is somewhat related to what you're talking about here in that we don't have this quickly growing labor force, but We do have this technology that's going to allow for more efficiency, more productivity, that sort of thing. But I'm curious how you're thinking about how the stock market has reacted to this hype around AI. Because for one thing, there are fundamentals attached to it pretty quickly. NVIDIA's forecast, how much they raise their forecast. All the cloud companies are raising their forecasts, if not all, many of them. Does the hype around AI justify what we've seen in the stock market this year, 30% up on the NASDAQ 100? And how do you sort of separate that hype from the true sort of fundamental potential from AI?
3: It's obviously early in the game, so we have to be a little careful about how strong a prediction we make here. I think in some cases you have specific firms that were remarkably well positioned for the growth in these sort of large language model, data-driven AI, that the market just didn't appreciate. And their chip technology, and I think this specifically refers to NVIDIA, although I will say I'm not an expert in this space particularly, they had the technology that was necessary for this, but no one sort of realized it until ChatGPT came along and showed the world what their particular chipsets were capable of relative to their peers. And I think that seems to be a a well-earned advantage now. I mean, whether the market is correctly valuing it, I think is hard to know.
1: Is it a potential macro force, you know, as far as unemployment rates, inflation? Do you think this is something we're gonna be seeing moving the numbers on on sort of the the macro numbers that we all look at?
3: So this is that's a topic we get at in the paper. Now we don't spend as much time on AI specifically, although we do speak a little bit about the cloud and sort of how that's rolling through the economy. But when you think about it, right, the challenge that a lot of developed economies have had is a declining working-age population and declining labor force participation. That's that's naturally an inflationary sort of impulse in the economy. Trying to get workers into that space is why we think that a lot of the technology gains from Zoom and other sort of remote work will be helpful. And it's not just allowing people to work where they want to work and not have to commute. It's worker populations that historically dropped out, whether it's older workers, women, people with children, those people who may have a handicap and might be unable to work in an office situation, You bring them back in, and that that supports the labor force to some extent. And you actually see a little bit of the data, and this is one of the more interesting charts in the paper. If you look at the long-term demographic trend of labor force participation, post-COVID, we actually were seeing higher levels of participation than that trend would have indicated. And I think that's clearly the result of technology, bringing people back into the labor force. The other thing that's a little more speculative but could be very interesting over the longer horizon is cross-border. So allowing workers in the developed world where there is a surplus of labor to get around the immigration barrier, which is a challenge, and work remotely. And so, you know, we're sort of optimistic that technology, broadly speaking, will bring workers in and ultimately be sort of a disinflationary force. Now, the point you're making about AI is it reduces the, the sort of the denominator, I guess, is to, in the mathematical way, you just need less workers because the computers will do the jobs that were being done by human beings. I think that's inevitable to some extent. I mean, we, we were already seeing that pre-COVID. You walk into a Burger King, you tap on a kiosk, you don't talk to a person. I don't know how often you walk into a Burger King, <laughs> but, you know, um, but, you know, like that's, that stuff's already changing. And then you think about sort of automation and industrial automation and the like caregiving to elderly in Japan where they have robots doing. It. I mean, there's a whole host of ways in which technology is stepping into the shoes of humans and that, but that's a very long-term trend.
1: More of a Wendy's guy, I
2: don't no, know. yeah no, I love Wendy's. actually. I'm so <laughs> glad you said that. I do like Burger King fries. I will just add, could an AI do a podcast? I don't think so.
1: Oh, they certainly have written some scripts that I've early that are on point. Uh. I
2: don't know, I don't know. I would fact check those, but okay, <laughs> so aside from this sort of long term disinflationary impulse that we're getting from tech that we could be getting from AI, if we bring that conversation to a slightly Shorter, but still longer term time frame. I want to talk about the inflation that we're experiencing right now. I think we finally put the term transitory to bed. We've disabused that notion. But is the inflation that we're looking at now? And of course, inflation has been coming down if you measure by CPI, if you look at PCE. But is this structural inflation? Is 2% still a realistic target? Or do you think inflation has structurally moved higher?
3: I think the Fed has the tools to get inflation back to 2% if they choose to. And at this moment, they're not going to back off of that as their stated target. Because, again, it gets back to the credibility question. Is there a scenario where the economy starts to go south and inflation has not yet come down enough that they have to make a really difficult choice between their sort of dual mandate? Potentially, but we're a long way from there. With employment at the current high levels... And inflation at the current high levels, clearly the thumb is on the scale with respect to the Fed's sort of objective function that fighting inflation is number one. So I think that's sort of where their heads are at right now. I think, you know, the question as to how structural it is, I think initially, you know, inflation was supply-driven when you get into sort of the early stages of COVID. It was reasonable for them to look at that situation and say that supply-driven inflation it tends to be self-correcting. And so the, the phrase transitory, which I think has come to be regarded as an unfortunate turn of phrase by Powell, there was some basis for that. Mm -hmm. But over time, I think what they missed was that the labor market sort of downturn was really short lived and was really almost like an accounting blip at the end of the day, because so many people got money from the government and stayed spending. The job market came back pretty strongly, pretty quickly. And the Fed was behind the curve very quickly. And it took them, particularly in the, the spring into the fall of 2021, when inflation was surging. And they were still working out of their prior forward average targeting and forward guidance. And they were living in this very slow-paced world of monetary policy reaction. And so they wound up behind the curve. And that allowed some of this inflation to become more structural. We did have a bit of a wage price spiral. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, classic, you know, when I learned economics, the basic message was you ignore headline because it's very volatile in both directions. A lot of the factors that go into headline inflation are... They're sort of elastic demand. They're substitutable. So, if it's high this month, it could be low next month. So you don't really worry about that. And core had been low for so long that I think people stopped worrying about it. And now it's high. And you know, and I think we don't yet have a good handle on how long it takes to come down. You know, I think it's it's an interesting moment to consider the difference in the choices made by say Paul Volcker back in the '80s versus Powell today. Volcker's policy path was to hike very rapidly to extremely high levels, generate a very strong positive real rate, effectively crush the economy, huge unemployment, but then rapidly cut. So the, 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 the hit was very painful, but it was very quick and very clear. Powell's chosen a more sort of finessed approach, which is to hike to a positive but fairly low real rate and then stay there. And so we're right in that bumpy phase where inflation is, the core is right around five, the rates are right around five. You can arm wrestle over whether there's a positive real rate at, at various points on the curve, but it's not clear that he's done enough to really tip inflation over yet. And mm-hmm. so I think, you know, they're, they're taking some comfort in the idea that there is a long lag. And you have also, I think, you know, an economy that built up a lot of leverage prior to COVID. And that cost is now coming due in the form of higher interest expense, not just for banks, but for anyone who borrows money. You know, I think they're probably right to pause and watch the data a bit, but it's, you know, they they have definitely not moved as aggressively as past feds have. So we have to be thoughtful about that.
1: Jared, one thing that came up over and over again, especially in the news, maybe I'm to blame. I think I edited probably half of these stories questioning whether sixty forty was dead in the, even in the pre-pandemic era, but then when rates got really ridiculously low during COVID, you know. Every day there was a new obituary for the 60-40 strategy, 60% of your portfolio in stocks, 40% in bonds. I feel like everything's changed now. So I'm wondering what the conversations are with institutional clients of yours these days. You've got this FOMO that seems to be erupting in the stock market, yet at the same time, it's very easy to get a risk-free real return Even in cash, money market's uh, almost at 5% in some cases. What are the conversations like? What should an institution, in your opinion, be doing with their money right now?
3: Yeah, there were a lot of obituaries written for 60-40. I probably wrote a few myself. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and look, I think 2022 was the worst possible outcome if you are a classic kind of correlation-based investor, where you get your risk management from the assumption that stocks and bonds will move in opposite directions at the same time. Yeah. Obviously, 2022 was the one year in 20 or 30 where that goes the wrong way on you, and it led to you know severe losses. So, you know, at the same time, even going into 2022, you could look at market valuations at the end of 21 and say equity valuations were high, bond yields were low. It was very hard to see how a 60-40 portfolio was going to do much for you, even if you didn't anticipate the sort of catastrophe that 2022 turned into. And I think the recipe then, which still makes a lot of sense, is Diversify not just in terms of sort of correlation of betas, but across genuinely diverse asset classes, particularly using alternatives mm-hmm. that have unique return streams, focus on managing liquidity and illiquidity. So you for whatever asset portion of your assets you put into long lock private equity and private credit strategies, you're going to generate a higher level of return almost certainly with those types of approaches, but they lock up your liquidity. And that's a problem for two reasons. One is if you need your liquidity, if you're a pension fund or an endowment who has to pay out, you have to have cash ready to go. It's also there's an opportunity cost. When you get a volatile market and the stock market goes down 20 percent and you'd like to be a buyer, where do you get the dry powder from? And so, you know, I think the 2022 episode has sort of forced people to rethink a lot of these issues I think the more diverse strategies going forward make a lot of sense. I think the alternatives world has evolved and diversified to the point where in the old days, investors tended to think of it as very illiquid. You're talking about drawdown structures in private equity and private credit that lock up your money for five, seven, 10 years or more. And because that money was locked away, you would only bother to choose those private vehicles that had the highest possible returns. I think what we've seen today is much greater willingness to look across the spectrum of alternatives, which has some much more liquid, some moderate liquid, some very illiquid. And that, if you use that entire spectrum, you can allocate a lot more of your capital in that space. I think we're going to still see a lot of stocks and a lot of bonds. Right now, cash is really interesting because you're getting paid to be defensive, which feels good. But, you know, there's a trap there too. I mean, if, if interest rates do start to fall, if the Fed is successful... The returns on your cash will come down pretty quickly. I think we're at a point now where fixed income investors should start to move back to their natural habitats. You know, if you're a a core bond investor who's just looking for diversity versus stocks, that's a good place to be. If you're a long duration investor who's hedging liabilities, you can start to move back out there. The curve seems to be in a pretty good place.
2: And I get that the argument that can be made about cash maybe turning into a little bit of a trap. But until that point, where the Fed starts cutting, and I forget exactly what language Powell used at the June presser, but I think he said something like rate cuts are a couple of years away. Like yeah. it feels like it doesn't really become a very scary trap until that point.
3: hundred percent. I mean, the, the, you are you're trying to anticipate when the Fed will pivot and when the rates will start to come down. Obviously, the Fed is going to be. Reacting to real data, there are a lot of people who have very well-founded views that a recession will be hitting, probably less likely in the very end of 2023, but certainly in 2024. And there's a lot of reasons to think that may be happening. And again, that's probably beyond the scope of our call today. But you know, when and if that happens, the Fed will react. Now, I think the question is how quickly they react. Where in that sort of progression do you put the first cut? And as you said, it's sitting in cash is pretty safe. Mm. You're getting paid.
2: That is. Interesting. Just piecing together what you said that when the recession comes, the Fed will cut and people will exit cash. I feel like that's one of the one of the many ways that sort of the perception of cash has changed. Like in the past few months, cash has become not necessarily a defensive strategy. It's going on the offense, collecting the yield in cash. And when you think about what the trigger for getting people out of cash would be, it might actually be the recession. I'm thinking out loud here. Because usually you think of cash as like, where that's you go my, when the recession is coming? Yeah,
1: yeah. capital and preservation. Not,
3: not. That's right. I mean, the key difference today is with the inverted curve. Everything else in bond land is a negative carry trade for the most part. You're getting paid more money at the front of the curve in the most defensive asset relative to just about everything else. And you can take on credit risk. And I think credit risk is reasonably priced. It certainly isn't cheap by historical standards. But yeah, to your point, you normally think of cash as having almost a penalty rate for the protection it provides. And that's just not the case right now. And I think a lot of investors are sort of appreciating that. And, and it's not pure cash. I mean, you have a variety of sort of money market strategies, short duration bond strategies. There's lots of things you can do to capture those yields.
1: You know, you mentioned how it seems like the recession calls keep getting pushed further out into the future now into 2024, but they're still there. The equity market really seems to be behaving like a soft landing is a done deal, a given. But I wonder, you know, if there is a recession in the cards for 2024, does it make sense that the stock market really saw the bottom in October of last year? Or do we have to have that sort of cathartic? drop in the market that we typically see during or right before a recession, at least.
3: I think what would be concerning is that with inflation where it is, the traditional sort of safety valve of that central bank put is no longer there. And so you have to be concerned that if there is an earnings recession, if stocks are selling off, that sort of habit that we've gotten used to of the central bank coming to the rescue just won't happen. I do think The fundamentals, I mean, this is why are the recession expectations getting pushed out? Because the economy is doing okay. The employment numbers are still pretty strong. Wages are still doing reasonably well. Consumer spending is pretty healthy. The real estate market is pretty sound. Obviously, there's some exceptions in sort of office space and things like that. But a lot of the things that would normally underpin a severe sell-off aren't really there. And I think, to the point you made earlier, like a big part of the equity run-up is a very concentrated exposure to the top- seven to 10 names that are largely tech-focused. So could those names snap back and have a real sell-off? Sure. But I think the rest of the market has not followed anywhere close to the same degree in terms of the valuation increases. And so I don't know that there's much of an air pocket underneath the entire market. There may be under some of the tech names, though.
1: Which, you know, if you're talking about a quarter of the weighting of the S&P with a handful of names, you know, on an equal-weighted basis might not be too bad, but it, it could get ugly.
3: Yeah, I mean, again, I, I that's I don't have a particularly clear sense of sort of the valuation for those firms, but yeah, just given what they've done, even a partial retracement from a percentage standpoint could be pretty severe.
2: And just on the topic of recessions and the yield curve, at what point can we say the yield curve was wrong? At what point do the recession <laughs> calls, does the actual recession get pushed out enough that it's not any longer in that magical twelve to eighteen month timeframe from the time that the curve inverted? How are you thinking about the yield curve and its potency as a recession indicator?
3: Well, you know, there's the old joke that the yield curve has predicted 10 of the last five recessions. (laughs) So you have to take it with a grain of salt. And I think one of the ways, and this, this sort of paraphrases a little bit of what's in our paper, you have to understand that COVID really was a very profound reset of the financial and economic system in a way that past business cycles were not. It's almost like when your computer's not working and the last resort is you just turn it off and you turn it back on.
2: That's my f- first you, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, and
3: you, you wait for the screen to come back on and you're like, please, please, God, let my, my, my document be up there when it turns on. And COVID was a little bit like that. And so a lot of the sort of habits and patterns that we got used to looking at don't necessarily apply here. I mean, the last, I mean, we really have to go back to the 80s to see a spike in inflation like what we saw, and a Fed reaction function like what we saw. And even there, the degree of leverage that had built up because of a very long period of low interest rates is unique. The asset class relationships that we're used to because, you know, were heavily biased by the fact that we lived through a 40-year disinflationary bull market. There's so many ways in which you really can't rely on the rules of thumb that have been passed down from the last 30, 40 years, you really have to look at the fundamentals. And so to your question about the yield curve, right now the Fed is anchoring the front of the curve at or slightly above the prevailing rate of inflation. And they intended to keep it there for some period of time. History suggests that positive real rates of a reasonable magnitude will slow the economy and will bring inflation down. And aside from that, you also have quantitative tightening and other things that are reducing the money supply. And all of those things together are pretty powerful. And so we do think growth will slow. Whether you get a soft landing or a recession and people can sort of arm wrestle over how you define those things, that's probably a little bit TBD, but we think it's going to work. Eventually, the direction will be down for inflation. It'll be down for rates. That's essentially what the curve is pricing. I think a lot of the volatility in the curve over the last year and a half has been, again, the market implicitly thinking the Fed did not have the sort of gumption to hold fast to interest rate hikes and that the market was essentially predicting that at the first bad data point or the first sign of market volatility, they would just cave. And they haven't. I think you have to give Powell some credit for that, which is they've, I think, spoken very clearly about what their intentions are and they've followed through.
1: Jared, I'm going to give you some credit too because we were joking before we started taping that the last time you were on, it was like this. We must have talked for a good hour about all the important cross-asset and macro things in the world. And then we spent about a minute on Bitcoin and crypto. And, of course, I made that the headline of the piece on the podcast. As is your right. As is mine. So I'm going to do that again, I think. No, I'm just kidding. But, Katie, I, I want you to chime in on this, too, because it is a fascinating development in the last week or two with BlackRock applying for a Bitcoin ETF. Mm-hmm. Wisdom Tree coming out, applying for one. We've seen Bitcoin ETFs before go nowhere, but I feel like when BlackRock does it, it's, something's changed, something's different. Yeah, Jared, let's start with you. Does this move? You know, I think the headline last time was J.P. Morgan's Jared Gross says uh, institutional investors have no interest in crypto or something like that. Does this change the game at all? Do you think now that if it, should BlackRock successfully launch a spot bit Bitcoin ETF?
3: So there's a lot of layers to that sort of process. One thing I think has become increasingly well established and understood is that Bitcoin itself as an asset is not a security. It is essentially a commodity. And there are past instances of ETFs based on commodities. So if you accept that sort of logic... I don't know that there's a regulatory barrier to this sort of proceeding. My assumption is BlackRock thought all this through and is not going to be right. investing all the time and effort to do something that's just going to get knocked
1: off the ledge by Gary Gensler. So they got some clarity from the actions against Coinbase and Binance. well, and
3: that's when I say there's distinctions. I think you really have to draw a very bright line between Bitcoin. Again, my understanding is sort of ether falls under that same kind of rubric. And the broader kind of tokenization of the crypto world, which I think is full of poorly regulated and sort of assets masquerading as securities that aren't regulated like security. And this is the place where the SEC and the CFTC are battling. And so, you know, I don't have a particular view on where those lines get drawn, but it certainly seems like the SEC has now thrown a marker down saying, if you are trading these things off an exchange. That they are securities, at least according to the SEC's definition. Mm-hmm. And that'll get litigated. I think Coinbase is suing them and they're going to go to court and figure out where the lines are drawn.
2: Grayscale but... is also suing the SEC because they had their spot, Bitcoin ETF. It was an application, Close but it in. was, yeah, trying to convert their trust into an ETF that was rejected last June, almost exactly a year ago. And they're now suing the SEC. but. Kind of make a comment to what Jared was saying to the idea that theoretically BlackRock has thought all of this through. You mentioned that we saw something from WisdomTree. You've also seen Invesco revive their spot Bitcoin ETF application and Bitwise as well.
1: Why now, Katie? Is it because they finally got that clarity, or feel like they've gotten the clarity on... in terms of BlackRock? Yeah.
2: I'm not sure what spurred the BlackRock filing. I've spoken to a lot of analysts and investors about what they could possibly be thinking. And the answer I get is in hushed tones, oh, it's BlackRock. They must know something. And theoretically, you look at this long line of issuers who are lining up right behind them, and that seems to be the thinking among the industry right now. It's going to be really fascinating to see how this plays out.
1: It would be shocking to see BlackRock get an ETF application rejected.
2: Yeah, That's what I was thinking. I want to go back and check. So BlackRock, they're the world's largest asset manager. They're also the world's largest ETF issuer, which kind of goes hand in hand. I would love to go back through history and see how many times they've filed for an ETF and had it not launched. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I, I think
3: with Bitcoin specifically, you also have to go back. And this, I think, was the subject we discussed last time I was here is what's the purpose of it? If you're an mm-hmm. investor, why do you want to own Bitcoin. I think and I think there's really two perspectives. There's a more of a retail perspective, which this is sort of a fun, interesting asset class. There's a lot of volatility. People love to day trade things with a lot of volatility, and you can make them a lot of money, you can yeah. lose a lot of money. Most of the institutional investors that I deal with, they don't think in those terms. They want to understand, is there a long-term positive rate of return attached to this asset? And does it have correlation advantages that diversify your portfolio? And I think with Bitcoin... The first one is hard to see. The second one, you can probably wrap your mind around that it is starting to become a little more like gold in the sense that it's this sort of uncorrelated thing. But still, it's very hard to postulate that there's an intrinsic rate of return attached to just being long Bitcoin. And it obviously has a lot of volatility, which from an investor standpoint is a risk that most institutions simply don't want to take. If it becomes increasingly normalized and liquid and easy to trade, then I think like a lot of commodities, it'll become at least potentially part of people's portfolios. But that's a, I, I, you know, as I said, I I try to draw a very clear line around Bitcoin versus the rest of crypto,
1: which I think is replete with dangerous places (laughs) that you do not want to go. I'm interpreting that as there's no lottery ticket allocation in most (laughs) institutional (laughs) portfolios. Jared Gross, head of institutional portfolio strategy at JP Morgan Asset Management. Thanks so much for coming back. Can't let you go just yet, though. We do have attrition on the show where hopefully you came prepared with the craziest thing you've seen in markets. I don't know. Anything?
3: The one that struck me when I was asked this is there was a story, I think it was in the New York Times the other day, about Argentina and how the dining scene in Buenos Aires is ultra hot, not because of all star chefs or low beef prices, but because inflation has gotten so out of hand that. The Argentines would rather spend their money instantly once they take it from the bank in a restaurant than watch it lose value sitting in their pocket. And so this has become the favored pastime of of the residents of Buenos Aires, which is to dine out as a hedge against inflation.
2: Wow. I've some pretty good food there, too. You know? Yeah, jeez.
3: I've, I've certainly spent a lot of money in restaurants without having it serve as a hedge against inflation, so <laughs> I don't...
2: I'm going to I'm gonna use that one. Yeah. No, I'm yeah. going to try it I, on my I, husband. Maybe I'll yeah. sleep
1: a little better at night when yeah. I get my credit card bill yeah. knowing that I was hedging Argentine inflation. <laughs> yeah. I, I had no idea my teenage daughters were hedging inflation yeah, they're, they're all this I, Yeah, they're deeply worried about inflation. The DoorDash. <laughs> the DoorDash hedge. All right, how about you, Katie? You oh see my anything God. We kind of
2: already talked about I was going to talk about the Bitcoin ETF yeah. filing rush to see a lot of issuers follow... In BlackRock's lead, I don't know. That's all I got. I mean, you could talk about the price of Bitcoin. It got close to or above thirty thousand. I think it rallied something like seventeen percent in the days since. BlackRock's. We're back, baby! It's crazy. We're back. Yeah, the smallest scrap of news, <laughs> and here we are.
1: It is crazy. I'll grant you that. The why now? I think yeah. is the crazy part. But it all—I mean, it all makes sense when you unpack it. And the... all right, I'll give you my crazy thing, and this relates to how hot the labor market is. There is a billionaire family in the U.K., a U.S. family, billionaire family. This is the New York Post, so they don't Mm -hmm. tell you the family. It's a blind item, I think they refer to it. A blind item. And this billionaire family is seeking a dog nanny. So someone to come in full time and watch their What's the salary on that? That is where we play Oh God! the Price is Precise game show. Jared, I regret to inform you, you're now a contestant. On the prices, precise. I'm terrible. i are gonna at make this. Katie go first. Katie, if you're a billionaire US family in London, mm. assume, no, not actually London. Not, yeah, not, Knightsbridge District. That's, that's in London. London. That's yeah. London. Yeah. Okay. Wait, so are we going annual salary? Is this an hourly wage? Annual is salary. Is it, is it per dog? Annual. How are we doing <laughs> this? Yeah, how many but dogs? They, one hole in the story is they don't tell you what kind of dogs. That would influence my. But multiple? Two dogs.
2: Two dogs. And is this in dollars?
1: You can, uh, I'll accept British pounds. Okay, I'm gonna go in dollars. dollars. Don't make me do the Bitcoin conversion, though. I'm just thinking
2: about the New York City Ratsar. I think the annual salary there is like 150,000. I'm gonna say 150,000 US dollars.
1: 150,000 US dollars. I'll give you a little more information, Jared, since you're the guest. You do get six weeks off. Oh, uh, wow. But the recruiter says, but when you're dealing with this sort of clients, if they wanna go to Monaco tomorrow, You'd be on a private jet flying with those dogs.
2: So So remote work is not an
3: option. Remote work is not an option.
1: You really need to drop everything and be there when they call and leave your private life on the back burner for these two billionaire dogs. So Katie.
2: I'm still going to stick with 150,000.
1: That's about 120. Uh, We have functions for this on the (laughs) Bloomberg Terminal. (laughs) So you went dollars? Yeah, you no know dollars. I'll accept okay. dollars.
3: I'll stay in dollars for. And remember, the uh, prices right rules are in effect. So you so. got to be under. You can't be over. Is that
1: how this works? Yeah. We'll call it closest to the pin. Okay. Yeah.
3: I'm going to say two dogs in London working for billionaires on call 24 seven is a ninety nine thousand dollar a year job. Holy cow! What oh is my it? Gosh.
1: Dollar? Wait, dollars? I or said pounds. dollars, but yeah. if you
3: if pounds is closer, I'll take that. Man. I...
1: I all right, I'm gonna to have to get the calculator out. One hundred thousand British pounds to take oh. care of two dogs. What is in that? London? One hundred twenty-eight thousand U.S. dollars. Oh wow, what's the difference? S- smack right smack in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. I think we got a draw.
2: I think so. Think
1: I'll have, take it. You have a draw.
2: That's pretty good.
1: And uh, it's time for me to announce. I'll be leaving Bloomberg for uh, stop for my. Oh. Retirement career as a dog nanny in London. Why did I immediately <laughs> no, I'm, I'm take kidding. you
2: seriously? <laughs> <laughs> I need to go. Oh,
1: no, believe me, when I leave, they'll be dragging me out of here <laughs> okay. in handcuffs, not in handcuffs, but
2: <laughs> kicking and screaming. Why doesn't Phil donna laugh? You are pretty funny. <laughs> <This> <laughs> See, is, this but, is well, I
1: hope you're listening. <laughs> that is what we call a backhanded compliment here in the <laughs> yeah, podcasting that's, world. That's, that's right. I'll take any compliment backhand, forehand, sidehand, <laughs> whatever it takes. <laughs> Jared Gross, Head of Institutional Portfolio Strategy at JP Morgan Asset Management. Really always a pleasure to hear your thoughts and express so simply and eloquently. Really appreciate it. And hope we can get you back again for a third time and yet another Bitcoin headline. <laughs> no Bitcoin
3: headlines. Yeah. You nope. already got one. Yeah, yeah. That's all you got.
1: Yeah. Nothing yeah. this time. Thanks, Jared. Take care. Bye bye.
0: What goes up we'll be back next week until then you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts we'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us you can find us on Twitter follow me at Vildana Hyrick Mike Regan is at Reganonymous you can also follow Bloomberg podcasts at podcasts what goes up is produced by Stacy Wong and our head of podcasts is Sage Bauman